often find that a particular mood occurs in me which affects my outlook for the better or the worse. When I'm feeling down, if you were to ask me what is troubling me, I would do my best to tell you. But the truth is, my narrative is as likely to be a best-guess confabulation as it is a proper diagnosis of my state of mind. I notice certain situations and life conditions that seem to co-occur with such melancholic states, but I don't really have access to the underlying dots, the connection of which establish my mood. My hypothetical explanation, whatever it is, amounts to following my thoughts and assigning to them a measure of accordance with my feelings. Perhaps I'm feeling down about myself because I slept in too late and didn't get as much done in the early half of the day as I had hoped. Perhaps I'm feeling run down from too much responsibility and I need to socialize or otherwise have a good time. All work and no play makes Jesse a dull boy. Or perhaps I have no idea what my problem is because I do not have access to the workings of my unconscious. I guess that's why people come to revelations through therapy or meditation or psychedelic experiences. At least in theory, analysis or altered states provide some insight into the thoughts beneath our thoughts, the prejudices and presuppositions that are implicit in our habits and behaviors. I don't know, but it is clear that consciousness is a limited thing. In this episode, I explored the limitations in conscious experience, which occur with one phenomenon that sometimes occurs in patients with neurological damage, the phenomenon known as blindsight. Severe damage to the primary visual cortex, V1, has been known for some time to result in blindness for the visual field opposite the lesion. Thus, it is the case that the complete removal of V1 on the left side will result in total blindness for everything which should appear in the right visual field, that is, to the right of the center of vision. This should not be confused with blindness of the right eye. Neurons situated in the retinas of both eyes send their projections back along the optic nerves toward the brain. A crossing over of half of the axons occurs at the optic chiasm. By this means, those axons corresponding for the right side of vision for both eyes enter the left hemisphere of the brain, and the axons corresponding to the left side of vision for both eyes enter the right hemisphere of the brain. The major target is the lateral geniculate nucleus of the thalamus, which then projects directly back to V1 in the occipital lobe. V1 is also called the primary visual cortex, or the striate cortex. The patient will experience a total lack of visual sensation with the removal of V1 from both hemispheres. Lawrence Weiskrantz and his colleagues investigated a bizarre phenomenon that sometimes occurs with neurological patients, blindsight. This is a condition in which a patient who is blind as a result of damage to V1, but under experimental conditions, can be shown to guess the presence of a stimulus under forced choice experimental conditions. In this episode, I will share with you some of the experimental results that he and others have attained, as he describes in his book, Consciousness Lost and Found. Weiskrantz writes, quote, the major target of the eye and its connection to the brain lies at the back of the brain in the occipital lobe in a region of cortex known as striate cortex because of its microscopic striped appearance or V1 or Brodmann's area 17 by anatomists. The connection is not direct. The largest portion of the optic nerve first terminates in a subcortical structure from which a relay is sent to striate cortex. But while this is the largest pathway originating in the eye destined for targets in the brain, it is not the only pathway. In fact, the eye connects in parallel to nine other targets in the brain aside from V1, although of course these pathways interact with each other via other connections. 
Thus, when V1 is damaged or blocked in the primate brain, information from the eye can still readily reach the brain via these other routes. It is not surprising, therefore, that monkeys can still carry out visual discriminations even in the absence of V1. Their ability is altered in some ways, but it is still quite creditable." Unquote. Weiskranz continues a bit further along, quote, the main point here is that there is considerable residual visual capacity through multiple pathways in the absence of the major input to cortex in the monkey's brain, Broadman's Area 17. But here is the paradox. Human patients in whom the occipital lobe is damaged say that they are blind in that part of the visual field that maps onto the damaged V1. Typically, such patients are blind in only one half of their visual fields because the left halves of the visual fields of both eyes project to V1 in the right cerebral hemisphere and the right halves of the visual fields to the left hemisphere. Of course, with damage to both V1s, they would be blind across the whole of the visual field, but fortunately for the patients, such cases are very rare." Unquote. The anatomy of the visual system of monkeys and humans are very similar, so researchers wanted to understand why the human patients are blind. Since animals cannot be asked to describe their experiences, tests have been done in monkeys which reward appropriate discriminations between visually presented stimuli. In such experiments, monkeys without V1 have been shown to do quite well. In the quest for consciousness, Christoph Koch says, quote, What happens when neuroscientists try to create a blind-sided monkey by destroying V1 on both sides? The short answer is remarkably little. A few months after the operation, it is hard to find anything amiss in these animals. They clearly orient themselves using visual cues. They can find and pick up peanuts and avoid obstacles. This raises the interesting question. Do these animals have any visual experience in their blind field? To many, this query seems fundamentally unanswerable. How can something be inferred about the phenomenal aspects of seeing from a creature who can't speak or write about them? Cowie and Storig proved the critics wrong. After removing V1 in one hemisphere in three macaque monkeys, the animals were trained to touch the location of a briefly flashed light on a computer screen, forced choice localization. As expected, they could do this task well, whether the light appeared in their normal or their blind hemifield. Cowie and Storig then switched to a different test, signal detection task. As before, when a light was presented, the monkeys had to touch its location on the screen. What was new was that on occasion a blank trial was inserted with no light. On these no-target trials, the monkeys were trained to press a special button indicating an empty screen. Under this training regime, the animals pressed the empty field button if a bright patch of light was projected into the damaged hemifield, but not when the light was in the sighted field." Unquote. This means that when Cowie and Storig's monkeys were forced to make a choice with regard to their blind visual field, they would do so correctly. But when they were asked to answer whether they saw a signal or not, they would answer that they did not, whether there was a stimulus presented to the blind field or not. First of all, this suggests that there is a phenomenal similarity between blind sight in humans and in monkeys. Secondly, it causes me to wonder whether animals, even primates, utilize consciousness to a lesser extent than we do. My intuition is that animals, at least mammals like monkeys and cats and rodents, are conscious just like humans are. Obviously, their thinking and self-awareness are decidedly reduced compared to ours, but like most other consciousness scientists, I assume that these animals have a mind and experiences. The Cowie and Storig experiment described in Koch's book seems to indicate that monkeys are conscious, but astoundingly, they behave quite similarly with or without visual experiences. Do macaque monkeys without V1 experience blindness? Do they wander around grasping for peanuts by intuition? If so, then maybe that is largely what drives monkey behavior. Maybe a full visual consciousness is just a cherry on top, 
helpful in certain complex environments and, and situations, but not critical for their daily routines. I am curious how well these cortically blind monkeys would do in a natural environment composed of trees and vines, a complex social world, lurking predators, and so on. Presumably a troop of macaques without V1, and therefore without consciousness of visual information, would be easily outcompeted by wild-type troops. Maybe they could manage to get around and feed themselves, but they would be unable to exploit opportunities or avoid threats to nearly the extent of their cortically whole counterparts. I don't know, but it's fucking weird. Weiskrantz writes, quote, The first clue about residual vision in people with visual cortex damage came from a study at MIT in 1973 in which brain-damaged U.S. war veterans were asked simply to move their eyes to the position of a brief spot of light shown onto their blind fields. The position of the light was varied from trial to trial in a random order. As they could not see, the subjects thought the instructions odd, but it emerged that their eyes did in fact move to the correct position. The effect was not strong, and it only held for positions within 20 degrees or so from the center of gaze, but it was statistically reliable. The unseen light was having some control over the subject's visual responses. Soon afterwards, a subject was found in London with a visual field defect caused by surgical removal of a small, non-malignant tumor that had invaded V1. That subject, DB, was seen by Elizabeth Warrington, other colleagues, and me, and given a variety of tests that extended, in fact, over some 10 years. The MIT results on eye gaze were confirmed, but a range of monkey-type tests were also administered in which DB had either to reach out to locate a stimulus or to guess which of two alternative stimuli had been shown. In the latter case, he was told what the two choices were and shown them in his intact half-field of vision before the tests in the blind half-field were started. The result was that DB could succeed in a variety of discriminations by guesswork in his blind field, even though he said that he did not see the stimuli. He could, for example, tell whether a circular patch of lines was oriented in one or another direction, or whether a stimulus was moving or stationary." Weiskrantz termed this phenomenon blindsight. Upon first learning the results of these guessing sessions, the subjects are quite naturally surprised at their degree of correctness. After all, they insist that they did not see anything at all during the test. The experiments are necessarily of a forced choice design. If you ask the subject to say what they are seeing in their blind field, they will say nothing, because they don't see in their blind field. Their blind field is blind. In his classic contrarian style, Daniel Dennett suggests in Consciousness Explained that the subjects aren't really blind at all. He writes, quote, What is going on in blind sight? Is it, as some philosophers and psychologists have urged, visual perception without consciousness, of the sort that a mere automaton might exhibit? Does it provide a disproof, or at any rate a serious embarrassment, to functionalist theories of the mind by exhibiting a case where all the functions of vision are still present, but all the good juice of consciousness is drained out? It provides no such thing. In their rush to harness blind sight to pull their ideological wagons, philosophers have sometimes overlooked some rather elementary facts about the phenomena of blind sight and the experimental setting in which they can be elicited. The interpretation of blind sight is controversial in many ways, but remarkably uncontroversial in one regard. Everyone agrees that the blind sight subject somehow comes to be informed about some event in the world via the eyes, in spite of having no conscious visual experience of the relevant event. More compactly, blind sight involves 1. Receipt of visual information, that is 2. Nevertheless unconscious. The proof of 1 is straightforward. The subject does much better than chance on tests that probe for that information. The proof of 2 is more circumstantial. 
The subjects deny that they are conscious of any such events, and their verbal denials are supported by neurological evidence of brain damage on the one hand, and by the coherence of their denials on the other. So we believe them. This is not a trivial point. Notice that what is striking about blindsight would evaporate immediately if we concluded that blindsight subjects were malingering, just pretending not to be conscious, or closer to home, compare acceptance of the denials of blindsight subject to the skepticism with which we greet the same denials when they issue from people diagnosed as suffering from hysterical blindness." Unquote. Dennett's skeptical view must at least be considered. Perhaps patients such as D.B. are seeing something, but it is degraded and different from normal vision. It doesn't seem like seeing to them. There are certain kinds of stimuli that blindsight patients do experience, notably motion. It's kind of hard to imagine what seeing motion would be like in the absence of seeing an object moving, but experiments have shown that motion can not only be discriminated from non-motion, but also experienced in some way. Wisecrantz writes, quote, There were conditions under which D.B. did have some kind of awareness. With some stimuli, he knew that something had moved in his blind field for example, and with very rapidly moving stimuli of high luminance contrast, he reported seeing some peculiar waves. That he had such experiences under certain conditions turned out in fact to be quite fortunate for further investigations in two ways. The first was that these experiences were distracting to him and actually misled him in making his choices. The waves did not represent the stimuli accurately, unquote. He goes on, quote, The second sense in which it was fortunate that D.B. reported some kind of experience a feeling or knowing, is that it later became clear that it was possible to specify the parameters that define the feeling mode, good discrimination with some awareness, as distinct from those that apply to the blindsight mode, good discrimination without any awareness, for the same type of visual discriminations." Unquote. So Dennett's argument would have to be saying that DB is misleading the investigators in some instances for some stimuli and not misleading them in other cases. Given that there are other pathways separate from the major optic nerve terminus in the lateral geniculate nucleus to V1 route, there is nothing spooky being proposed here. If there were, as for instance if the optic nerves were cut and researchers were claiming some residual function, I would be happy to share Dennett's point of view. It seems apparent that normal vision as we know and appreciate it is mediated by the primary visual cortex. It's interesting to consider what blindsight with good discrimination by means of guessing must be like. A key secondary target for the axons that make up the optic nerve is the superior colliculus of the brainstem. In Wisecrantz's book, he says that imaging studies of blindsight show substantial activity in the superior colliculus. This subcortical region is probably essential to the experimental findings of visual discrimination without awareness that occur in blindsight patients. I wonder what would happen to the monkeys if you remove V1 from one hemisphere and lesion the superior colliculus. I don't know if that experiment has ever been attempted. But I'm not surprised that I haven't heard of human patients with this combination of brain damage. The superior colliculus is not at all adjacent to the visual cortex. Imagine if you had to guess the result of a coin flip, which was carried out behind a screen. I'm picturing a DM screen behind which the dungeon master might make a surreptitious die roll during a game of D&D. The cardboard screen probably has a corny airbrush painting of a red dragon coiled around the bearded form of a standard gaudily clad wizard grimacing beneath woolly eyebrows as he prepares to launch some spell. Anyway, you have to guess the result of a coin flip over many trials. First, the experimenter instructs you to pay attention to your feelings as he flips the coin and tells truthfully what it says. Here, says the experimenter, is heads. Notice your feelings. He repeats this training exercise a bunch of times. 
and then stops telling you what it says and instructs you to guess. After a hundred trials, he tells you the result. But rather than being at or around what would be expected by chance, it turns out you got 80% of your answers correct. Obviously, this is a bullshit analogy, since telepathy doesn't work and we have no special sense for intuiting the result of a hidden coin flip. But if we did have some sixth sense like this, which we could cultivate by training, I have to imagine that this is what it would feel like to offer guesses during blindsight experiments. As you made your guesses, the thought or preference for heads or for tails would have to come from somewhere. Normally, our thoughts and preferences simply arise out of the unconscious. We are blind to the ruminations of unconscious brain functions. Undoubtedly, though, these are complex analytical processes and not at all random or capricious. Magicians can apparently use subconscious tricks to prime certain answers in audience members. I could imagine Darren Brown doing a trick like this, somehow cueing his subject to answer heads or tails correctly, or to guess the number he has written down on a sheet of paper. The subject is unaware that he is being cued or primed to answer as he does, and the result astonishes him. Maybe this is what the superior colliculus is doing in the case of blindsight. With no conscious perception of visual information, the blindsight patient nevertheless has the thought or feeling to say A or B, horizontal or vertical, square or circle or whatever, but it feels to him like magic. I have suggested that conscious contents are meaningful due to the geometric relationships that obtain among networked neuronal activities. Of course, we have nothing at all like a visual experience of our thoughts and the logic that connects them together. In that sense, we are equipped with blind thought. A thought emerges in mind and we can then give it voice or contemplate its ramifications, but where has the thought come from? Just like the blindsight patient who evidently has access to some kind of visual information but is completely at a loss for the nature of that information, what it looks like, we are every day indulging in the magic of our emergent thoughts. In the last episode, I, I propose that consciousness might function as a qualitative evaluator. Now that I've been thinking about blindsight, it occurs to me that there might be a kind of circumstantial evidence in that line of research that favors the qualitative evaluator hypothesis. Consider the monkey with total ablation of V1. The monkey behaves in a way which appears from the outside to be pretty normal. Clearly it uses visual information, though the Cowie and Storig study suggests that it is not having visual experiences of its environment. It has blindsight. What if we are witnessing in the behavior of that monkey visually directed behavior but without the qualitative evaluator having access to visual perception? In that case, we are observing that in the non-complex environment of the, of the laboratory vivarium, the qualitative evaluator function is superfluous. Just as you or I might drive a car as if we were on autopilot, we can drift off in our mind and control the car by rote, at least as long as nothing novel or emergent occurs to capture our attention. It seems apparent to me that a cortically blind person would behave as if he or she were blind. It would be obvious to anyone. Recall that the blindsight patients were completely unaware of the capacity to use information from the blind field. They navigate the world by means of their functioning visual field instead, and they got on pretty well despite their neurological deficit. Would a patient with the total loss of both primary visual cortices act like the monkey or like a blind person? I think it's pretty clear that they would act as any other blind person would act. This conclusion provides evidence that consciousness as we know it is utilized to a much greater degree in humans than in other primates. I don't know about you, but I find that idea astonishing. I'm not prepared to draw such a conclusion upon just the evidence from blindsight, but it has to at least be considered. 
the massive expansion of prefrontal cortex and the recent evolution of our species might have been at least in part a capitalization on consciousness, which in lower mammals is underutilized. Could it be that functional consciousness, with a sense of will and purpose, is that recent a development? Thank you.